0: Well, hello again. Welcome back. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in school and at the bedside. And if this is your first time here, hello, hello, hello. I'm so glad to have you. Before we dive into today's topic, and it's a big one. So, first, I want to make sure you are doing something really productive, like going for a nice long walk, or maybe this is a nice uh, commute where you can get through the whole episode by the time you get to your destination, or you're going to finally tackle that giant pile of laundry. Okay, let's make use of our time together. Before we get into the topic, though, I do want to take a minute for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Elizabeth, who says this. Thank you for all your time and effort into aspiring older moms pursuing our dreams once our children are grown. I also ventured into becoming an EMT and with your podcasts, printables, study sesh, classes and planners, I was able to ace not only my HESI entrance exam, but everything in EMR, EMT and advanced EMT Training while awaiting my acceptance and completing my prerequisites. I can't wait to spend my next two years with you to complete my BSM. Elizabeth, way to rock your EMT training. I'm so, so proud of you and for pursuing your dream after you did all that hard work, all that amazing work raising your children. It's time for you and your dreams now, right? And I could not be more happy for you. So make sure you reach back out to me when you are accepted into nursing school so I can celebrate with you. And then again, when you get your license, we'll definitely celebrate that one. Alrighty, so today's topic, as I said, it's a big one, is bone marrow transplant. Now, I tried to keep it to just the main things to know. There is a lot more about this subject. Consider this the basics of bone marrow transplant, okay? So first, what is a bone marrow transplant? Well, it is a procedure that replaces damaged or sick bone marrow with healthy bone marrow so that the individual can produce healthy blood cells on their own. It is utilized to treat a lot of different conditions such as acute leukemia, multiple myeloma, aplastic anemia, Hodgkin's and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, immune deficiencies, sickle cell disease, and neuroblastoma. And yes, there are others. First, let's talk about the function of bone marrow. So recall that bone marrow is that spongy and really nutrient-dense substance found in the center of most bones. So bone marrow comes in two forms. We have the red marrow and the yellow marrow. So red marrow has stem cells that can differentiate into platelets, red blood cells, and white blood cells. It's typically found in the long bones, as well as the hip bones, the shoulder bones, and the skull bones. And then the yellow marrow has stem cells that can differentiate into bone itself, cartilage, or fat storage within the bone. It's typically found in the center of long bones as well. So what are the types of bone marrow transplants? So the bone marrow used for the transplant can be from a donor. And when it's from a donor, this is called allogeneic transplant. It can also be from the patient's own bone marrow, and they obtain that bone marrow before it becomes damaged, and then they use it later. So when it's from the patient, it's called autologous transplant. So you may see bone marrow transplant, or BMT, also referred to as stem cell transplant or Hematopoietic Stem Cell Transplant, or HSCT. For the purpose of this episode, we're just going to say bone marrow transplant. Sometimes I'll just say transplant, and sometimes we'll say BMT. Got to keep it interesting. Like I said, this is a big one. So the key benefit of an allogeneic transplant is that the donor cells can provide an immune response to help fight off the diseased cells in the patient. Now, the biggest risk with this type of transplant is graft versus host disease. We're not going to go all the way into graft versus host disease. That is worthy of an entire episode all on its own, but we'll talk about it a bit here and there. We also refer to this as GVHD. We love our acronyms. All right, let's talk about the autologist transplant. The key benefit of this type is that there is no risk for GVHD, because the patient is using their own bone marrow. There's also no need to find a suitable match. The main risk for this type of transplant is that there is no donor immune system protection, so there is a greater chance of relapse. There is a subtype of allogeneic transplant, and that's xenogeneic transplant, where the donor is an identical twin. Now, the obvious key benefit of this type of transplant is that the twins are an exact match, so there is a very low chance of the patient getting graft-versus-host disease, or GVHD. Additionally, the potential for the donor cells to grow within the patient, a process called engraftment, is higher. However, since that donor immune system is basically or very, very near identical to the recipient's immune system, the new cells may not recognize and fight off the cancer cells, leading to a higher incidence of relapse. All right, now let's talk about the options for obtaining the stem cells themselves. So stem cells can be obtained from bone marrow, from peripheral blood stem cells, or PBSC, and from umbilical cord blood. So to obtain stem cells from bone marrow, the donor is placed under anesthesia in a quick surgical procedure and bone marrow from the iliac crest is removed via a needle aspiration. Peripheral blood cells are obtained via an IV catheter much in the same way that blood is donated. In an allogeneic transplant, How this process works is the donor is given medication to stimulate the production of stem cells for about maybe four to six days prior to the collection. And this could vary, but that's just a generalization. So then the cells are retrieved, and this could be done via that bone marrow aspiration that I mentioned, or from the donor's blood, that peripheral blood from an IV catheter. Most commonly, it's going to be via that IV catheter, much like the process with blood donation. Like I mentioned, it's a lot easier for the patient. They don't have to undergo anesthesia or a surgical procedure. It's just more accessible for that donor patient overall. So the blood is then sent through processing. It goes through a centrifuge to separate the stem cells from the other blood components. And then the blood components are returned to the donor and the stem cells are then frozen so that they can be utilized for the recipient. If, unless they're going to be used right away, of course. So prior to the stem cell infusion, the recipient is going to go through a stage called conditioning and treatment. So in this stage, the recipient undergoes high-dose chemotherapy with or without radiation. They may get radiation as well. And this is done to kill off cancer cells and to purposefully weaken the immune system so the body doesn't reject the donor cells as readily. So that's allogeneic transplant, kind of the process. And then in an autologous transplant, the patient is given medications that cause the body to produce and release more stem cells into the bloodstream in the same way that that allogeneic donor had to do. The patient's going to do this themselves. We call this stem cell mobilization. The patient then has their stem cells collected from either the bone marrow or the blood And the blood is processed through that centrifuge in the same way to get the stem cells removed and the rest of the blood is returned to the patient. And then in that conditioning and treatment stage, the patient undergoes that high-dose chemotherapy. They may get radiation. And this is going to kill off the remaining cancer cells while also killing off any blood-producing cells left in the patient's bone marrow. And when the patient is ready, and this is about 17 days after chemotherapy in both both cases, the frozen stem cells are thawed and reintroduced into the patient. So benefits of obtaining stem cells from peripheral blood over the bone marrow, and I touched on this very briefly earlier, is that cells obtained via peripheral blood tend to be more mature, which can lead to earlier engraftment. Peripheral collection, like I mentioned, also does not require the donor to undergo that surgical procedure and anesthesia. It's just overall more accessible in that way. The downsides to peripheral collection is that it can take multiple sessions over multiple days to get enough stem cells for transplant. So you got to have a really dedicated donor. But I imagine if you're consenting to a surgical procedure and to have bone marrow aspirated, you're pretty dedicated in that way as well. So I also mentioned umbilical cord blood a moment ago. So what about that? Umbilical cord blood can be utilized for stem cell donation by removing blood from the umbilical cord immediately after birth. The blood is tested, frozen, and stored for potential later use. The benefits of this type of collection is that the cells are not differentiated, so they can be used for donors who cannot find a compatible HLA match, and we'll talk about matching a bit in just a moment. It is also easy to obtain the stem cells in this manner and does not put the child or the parent at risk. Now, a potential downside to this method is that genetic conditions could be transferred to the recipient. And since the cells are not differentiated at all, engraftment can take longer. And we'll talk about engraftment in a bit as well. So first, let's talk a little bit about how a match is determined. And this is incredibly complex. I'm just going to give you that high-level overview. So HLA matching utilizes PCR. You learned about that technique in chemistry and maybe microbiology. So HLA matching utilizes PCR to look at DNA segments that encode the human leukocyte antigen. That's why it's called HLA matching human leukocyte antigens, and it determines if they are similar enough for a quality match. If the quality of the match is low, the patient is at higher risk for developing graft versus host disease, which is a serious and could be life-threatening complication. Patients are most likely to match with the donor, who is their same ethnicity, and there's an even greater likelihood of match when the potential donor is within their own family. In fact, a patient has about a 30% chance of finding a matched donor within their family, and there's a 25% chance that a sibling will be a match. Okay, I mentioned engraftment a moment ago, and then I left you hanging. So engraftment is essentially when the recipient's body takes on that newly transplanted cells, those newly transplanted cells, and they begin to grow in the bone marrow. In order for the stem cells to rescue the patient after his or her bone marrow has been depleted by high-dose chemotherapy and radiation, the stem cells must be able to survive and grow in the patient's bone marrow, and that's called engraftment. So the average time to engraftment ranges from about 14 to 21 days and can depend on the type and method of transplant, as I already shared with you. So imagine that during that 14 to 21 days, the patient's not really producing much in the manner of blood cells, right? They're not producing platelets. They're not producing producing white blood cells. They're not producing red blood cells. So you can probably start to imagine the potential risks and complications and all the implications of what caring for a patient after BMT entails. So let's talk a little bit about some of the complications of bone marrow transplant. And there are several serious complications that can occur. And these include graft versus host disease. And I would love to talk all about it. I think this will be a whole episode all on its own. So keep an eye out for that if you're interested in this topic. But that's a big one, graft versus host disease. And this is essentially where the body rejects the bone marrow transplant. It doesn't recognize it as self and it comes after it. There's also infection. There's also mouth sores, mucositis. There's also nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. The patient could have changes in taste or loss of taste and all of those things. The mouth sores, the nausea, the vomiting, the diarrhea, the lack of taste could lead to malnourishment very easily. So the patient may be malnourished. That could be a serious consequence of bone marrow transplant. They could also have fluid volume overload and something called engraftment syndrome, which is a condition that's characterized by fever, rash, diarrhea, diarrhea, Pulmonary infiltrates and neurological symptoms after an autologous stem cell transplant. And then there's veno-occlusive disease. This condition causes liver damage. So the patient will have things like hepatomegaly, jaundice, and ascites. And when severe, it can lead to multi-organ failure and death. In fact, the mortality rate for veno-occlusive disease is really high. It's like greater than 80%. Now, it's more likely to occur in patients who are very, very young, less than a year old, those with prior liver or kidney disease, those with advanced malignancy, and even those on TPN, total parenteral nutrition. It is also more likely in those undergoing allogeneic transplant with unrelated donors or those with poorly matched donors and in patients who receive certain medications, including cyclophosphamide, busulfan, methotrexate, and cyclosporine, and in patients who have undergone multiple autologist transplants with poor prognosis. Then there's hemorrhagic cystitis, which is just as terrible as it sounds. The manifestations can range from just microscopic hematuria all the way up to significant hemorrhage and obstructive renal failure. And then there's hepatorenal syndrome. About 15% of patients who receive BMT or a bone marrow transplant experience renal failure, and this is often due to venoocclusive disease, which, as you recall, affects the liver. So now that you have some foundation knowledge, quite a bit of foundation knowledge about bone marrow transplant, it's finally time to dive into the nursing implications using the straight A nursing latte method. So that first letter is an L for look. How does the patient look? What are you going to notice? What are their signs and symptoms? So if the patient has undergone an autologous transplant utilizing bone marrow from a bone marrow aspiration, they will initially have pain and some bruising at that site over that iliac crest. So you could expect to see that. And then other signs and symptoms associated with bone marrow transplant are essentially going to be very closely related to those of chemotherapy and radiation because of that conditioning stage, right? Now, common signs and symptoms that you will see are things like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, The patient will likely be very fatigued. They could have mucositis. That's pretty common, that inflammation and sores in the mouth. They may have significant weight loss. And when you look at their labs pancytopenia while the patient is waiting for engraftment to occur. I have seen some crazy low platelet counts. Like, of course, you expect the white blood cell count to be low, but people forget about the platelets. I have seen some scary, scary low platelet counts in patients who've undergone a bone marrow transplant. And then, of course, they will exhibit signs and symptoms specific to any post-transplant complications that they are experiencing. And there are so, so many. I can't possibly go through all of those with you. This list is very extensive and will vary from patient to patient. But in general, think nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, fatigue, mucositis, weight loss, I would even say reduced appetite, and also that pancytopenia while they're waiting for engraftment to occur. All right, now let's talk about assessment. How are we going to assess our patients who are undergoing BMT or who've gone through a BMT? So A is the next letter in the LATTE method, and A is for assess. So the main goal of your assessments will be to monitor your patient very, very closely for complications, and for any signs of deterioration. So this includes taking vital signs frequently with a very specific focus. Like you wanna be really clear that you're getting accurate temperatures, as this is often a sign of infection. So normally, we don't get excited about a temperature of 100.5. But in a patient with bone marrow transplant, we would. So after bone marrow transplant, a patient is generally considered to be febrile when their temperature is above 38 degrees Celsius or 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. In Context. To give this some context, if I've got a patient who has not had a bone marrow transplant and they've got a fever of 100.4, my Tylenol order doesn't even cover that. No one's going to care if the patient has a temperature of 100.4. They view a mild fever as therapeutic. It's going to help the patient fight infection. So typically, Tylenol orders for a patient without bone marrow transplant or neutropenia or any of that Is going to be after like 101.5 in most cases. So I just want you to understand that the threshold to get riled up about a temp is much lower in a patient after a bone marrow transplant. You'll also monitor very closely for signs of fluid overload, and this includes taking daily weights, keeping strict count of all their I's and O's, monitoring for edema, and auscultating lung sounds. With that said, Monitoring patients for respiratory distress is very important. This can be related to fluid overload or other complications such as graft versus host disease or pneumonia or pneumonitis. You'll assess the patient's respiratory rate, their oxygen saturation level, listen to their lungs, observe their work of breathing. You also want to monitor for those early signs of graft versus host disease, which involves a burning red rash that can occur anywhere, and it's often maybe on the early stages seen in the buccal mucosa. You also want to assess for pain, and this can be related to that bone marrow aspiration site or complications such as mucositis, GVHD, or veno-occlusive disease. You'll also assess your patient's risk for falls. They may have an unsteady gait and be very weak after the transplant due to a lot of reasons like deconditioning, weight loss, malnourishment, loss of muscle mass, potential neurotoxic medications, and again, GVHD causes a lot of problems in our patients. And because platelets are very low, while we're waiting for engraftment to occur, You'll assess your patient's bleeding risk and be very, very watchful for signs of bleeding. So not just looking for gross bleeding, and I don't mean gross like it's icky. I mean gross like very obvious signs of bleeding. I'm talking about look at your IV sites. Look to see if there's any seeping around IV sites. Look at their gums. You might see bleeding around the gums, things like that, watching for signs of bleeding. You'll also monitor your patient for signs of infection and keep a very, very close eye on things like their Foley catheter, is their urine clear, or is it cloudy, which could indicate infection, and then a very close eye on their central venous catheters because that's another potential place for significant infection in your patient after a bone marrow transplant. Okay, now let's move on to the next letter in the latte method, which is a T, and that's for tests. So what tests will be utilized for this patient? So before transplant and prior to being considered for a transplant, the patient will undergo a bone marrow biopsy or bone marrow aspiration. So this test allows the MD to see specific abnormalities in the quality and the quantity of the blood components. And then there's that HLA matching, which is also called tissue typing. And this involves blood draws of both the patient and the donor if they're going through an allogeneic process. This is not necessary in an autologous transplant, obviously. Other blood tests screen the patient for infectious disease such as hepatitis, HIV, cytomegalovirus, toxoplasmosis, herpes simplex virus, and varicella zoster. There are others, but generally they just want to get an idea of how healthy the individual is before they put them through this. Renal and hepatic function will be evaluated prior to transplant, and the patient will also undergo a pregnancy test if applicable. Other tests include ferritin, ABO blood type, CBC with differential coagulation studies and quantitative immunoglobulins. The patient may also get heart and lung tests, including a pulmonary function test in order to determine a baseline. And then cardiac tests are going to be things like an EKG to look at the heart rhythm. The patient may also get an echocardiogram, which provides information about heart and valve function. They may also get a CT scan and or a PET scan to evaluate the extent of disease and really see how the organs and the tissues are functioning. So a PET scan can really get down and show cellular level metabolism changes of an organ or a tissue. So that may be ordered for your patient as well. And then in that conditioning stage, some medications like busulfan, and I really hope I'm saying that right, busulfan, require very close monitoring after the infusion is complete. There are probably others as well. Just know that some of those lab draws may be related to the medication the patient received. Okay, now let's talk about after the transplant. So after the transplant, your patient's going to get a lot of routine lab draws. And this includes a CBC, which is a complete blood count. And that would most likely be with that differential to see how many neutrophils, all of that. And a CMP, which is a complete metabolic panel. So the CMP includes electrolytes, it includes renal labs like BUN and creatinine, and it includes liver enzymes. If the patient is receiving tacrolimus or cyclosporine, those levels will be evaluated routinely as well. Now, if infection is suspected, the patient will be pan-cultured. Now, what this means is we send every kind of culture that we can obtain. We get blood cultures, especially if the patient has a central line. We have a very high index of suspicion that they have a central line infection. So we would get blood cultures. We would get urine cultures if the urine is looking suspicious. Wound cultures if a wound is looking suspicious. Sometimes we'll pull that catheter and send the catheter tip to be cultured, and if the patient's exhibiting respiratory symptoms, we'll get some sputum if we can. And then chest x-ray may be utilized in cases when the patient is experiencing respiratory complications, fluid volume overload, or suspected pneumonia or pneumonitis. And then we did pulmonary function tests prior to our bone marrow transplant. We may do them after transplant when respiratory complications are of special risk or the patient exhibits signs of respiratory involvement. And then, of course, specific tests related to the patient's specific complication of which there are many. We don't want to forget those. So now let's dive into the next letter in the LATTE method, which is another T, and that is for treatments. What treatments do we provide for our patient? So prior to transplant, patients will receive immunosuppressants to help prevent graft versus host disease in that allogeneic transplant. They're also going to be receiving chemotherapy remember, that's part of that conditioning treatment, and they may get radiation in conjunction with that. And then, of course, they'll get medications to address the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation, such as anti-emetics, like the medication on Dancitron or Zofran. And then after transplant, to prevent GVHD, the patient's going to get a medication that lessens the potential for rejection, like tacrolimus or cyclosporine. The patient will also get a colony-stimulating factor, such as the medication Granix, which is TBO filgrastim, and this may be used to help shorten the time from neutropenia to engraftment. So we're going to try to get the patient to engraftment quicker with a colony-stimulating factor, and this will help reduce the occurrence of neutropenic fever and neutropenic complications. Antibiotics will be utilized in cases of infection and may even be used prophylactically. Remember, the patient is neutropenic and immunosuppressed, so they are at extremely high risk for infection. The patient will be prescribed a neutropenic diet while they're in the hospital to help prevent infection. There's a lot that goes into the neutropenic diet. I'll talk about it more when we get to the patient education component, but in the hospital setting, some key things to know is that it's going to include probably no raw fruits or vegetables and bottled water only. The patient may require packed red blood cells and platelet transfusions. Remember, before engraftment occurs, the patient's not really going to be producing much in the way of blood cells. So giving platelets, giving packed red blood cells will probably be a daily or near daily occurrence if you work in a BMT unit. Note that those PRBCs are going to be washed prior to administration and may also need to be leukoreduced and CMV negative. And then, of course, specialized treatment will be provided aimed at whatever specific complications the patient has. Another key consideration throughout the entire phase of treatment is infection prevention. That should be like an underlying theme for everything you do with your patient. So the key tenements of infection prevention include maintaining neutropenic precautions in a private room. It should definitely not be a negative pressure room, and the patient may actually be in a positive pressure room. All visitors and healthcare workers entering the room should wear the appropriate PPE, And other neutropenic precautions include no fresh flowers, no live plants in the room, no stagnant water basically of any kind or anything that could harbor bacteria, no ill visitors, no pet visits. So if the therapy pets come by, sorry, you can look at them through the doorway, but that's it. And if the patient leaves the room for any reason, they must wear a mask. You also want to ensure that anyone entering the room And the patient also adhere to the strictest standards for proper hand hygiene. You will provide excellent oral care to your patient, utilizing soft brushes or sponges, especially if the patient has mucositis, graft versus host disease, or even just low platelets. They can bleed from a regular toothbrush, so using a very soft brush or even those sponges. If the patient is neutropenic, and they will be for a time, avoid any trauma to the skin. That includes no enemas, no IM injections, no rectal temperatures, no Foley catheters, and probably not even any suppositories. You want to maintain the integrity of central lines by changing dressings per protocol or anytime it's needed scrubbing that hub vigorously with alcohol prior to use for the appropriate amount of time dictated by your facility, flushing the lines routinely, and changing all IV tubings as scheduled. You'll perform perineal care promptly to avoid or prevent urinary tract infection. And with that, if the patient has a catheter, perform catheter care per protocol, which is typically at least once per shift, and of course, when soiled. We want to prevent a catheter associated UTI. We also want to ensure daily bathing for our patients with chlorhexidine or CHG. This does a ton a benefit for the patient to prevent infection. Note that this may be very irritating to the skin of someone with a radiation rash or GVHD, so alternative methods of bathing are likely going to be used in these cases. And we also want to preserve skin integrity by keeping the patient clean, keeping them dry, and by repositioning the patient as needed to prevent pressure ulcers from developing. Note that soiled linens and clothing and waste from patients who have recently received chemotherapy definitely needs to be handled with care. So this includes the appropriate PPE, which is chemo gloves or double gloving, wearing a gown and wearing goggles or a face shield if splashing is a potential risk. You dispose of all the waste in an appropriate chemo bin at my facility, their bright yellow, and double flush the toilet after depositing waste. In addition, patients and families may require a fair amount of psychosocial support during bone marrow transplant. You want to provide opportunities for therapeutic communication. And if the patient does not have a social worker assigned advocate for a social work consult, as well as a spiritual care consult as appropriate. These modalities, these treatment modalities, these members of the interdisciplinary team can do so, so much for the patient that you simply don't have time to do. You can also provide resources for community support to patients and their families, as these have definitely been shown to decrease anxiety and stress related to the entire process. So, that brings us to the final letter in the latte method, which is E. How do you educate the patient and the family? So, in addition to ensuring that the patient and their family understand the medications, the tests, and the treatments involved in their care, Other things to include in your teaching plan are basic infection prevention measures at the hospital and for after the patient goes home. This includes how to perform hand hygiene, which PPE they need to use if they're coming into the room, which PPE the patient needs to use when they're leaving the room or leaving their house after discharge, the restriction of ill visitors being very important, and restrictions on what the patient can have in the room, such as fresh Flowers. A lot of times there's some disappointment with that when they receive flowers, and you're like, I'm sorry, we can't have these in the room. I have to take them. I'll put them out here at the nurse's station so you can see them if you look out the door, but they can't have them in the room. And then you also want to teach about neutropenic diet parameters to follow both in the hospital and at home. And I talked a little bit about it. Let's talk about it a little bit more here. You should probably tell the family just don't bring any outside food in. We're going to just provide very safe food for the patient while they're here in the hospital. And of course, they're going to go home. They may still be following that neutropenic diet for a while. So these guidelines include things like no raw or undercooked eggs, fish, shellfish, meats, or poultry. Basically, anything they eat is going to be cooked. No deli, processed, cured, or smoked meats. Okay, so no hot dogs. I mean, I did see one source that said they they could possibly have, you know, like a processed meat, like a hot dog if it was very, very thoroughly cooked. But I don't know. Hot dogs are kind of weird anyway. So no deli processed cured or smoked meats, of course, refer to your facilities education guidelines if they do have something specific about those processed and cured meats. Definitely no salad bars. They're not going to any potlucks while they're on neutropenic diet, and they're definitely not going to that delicious Indian food buffet down the street. No buffet-style restaurants of any, any kind. No leftovers older than 48 hours, and they must be reheated sufficiently and only one time. It's not a situation where you need to reheat it and then cool it and then put it in the fridge and then reheat it again. That's a, just mess them with the bacteria there. That's a beautiful environment for bacteria to grow. The patient may need to avoid most raw fruits and vegetables. It may depend on what the MD states. Sometimes, What they'll state is you can have raw fruits and vegetables, just scrub them very, very well. Sometimes they'll say, don't have this kind, have this kind, et cetera. So make sure that they understand if there are any stipulations around that. They should thoroughly wash all produce, even fruits that have very thick skins. If they're going to be cutting through them, especially cutting through them is just going to introduce any bacteria on the outside into the fruit. They should understand safe food handling practices such as keeping a dedicated cutting board for meats and a different one for their vegetables. Plastic cutting boards are generally better than wood. They're easier to clean and wood kind of harbors bacteria. They need to ensure that food is refrigerated or frozen immediately after purchase. So get home from the store, put stuff away immediately, and that leftovers, again, refrigerate them or freeze them within two hours of eating. And for an Excellent summary of the neutropenic diet and all the precautions. I'll put a link in the episode notes. There's even more that I mentioned here. And then another thing with that diet is no unpasteurized products, including honey. So that is the latte method for caring for a patient with bone marrow transplant. That's just the tip of the iceberg. It can get so much more complex, especially when the patient has a complication. So I'll do some follow-up episodes, especially about graft versus host disease, hopefully not too far into the future. So in closing, I just want to remind you that bone marrow transplant is an incredible procedure that saves lives. Be the match is that donor registry, and it has connected more than 111,000 patients with blood stem cell donors. So if you would like to get in on the Be The Match registry through that National Marrow Donor Program, go to bethematch.org to get started. I'll put the link in the episode notes as well, but that's be the match.org. And it basically just involves a simple cheek swab that you do at home. Then you just sit back and wait to see if you've been matched. And the good news is, you might just save a life. So I actually was on the bone marrow registry for a long time. And I got a letter, I got a letter that I was a potential match. And I cannot tell you how excited I was. Oh, my gosh, I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm a potential donor. I'm gonna re- I'm gonna eat more salads. I'm gonna start juicing again. I'm gonna get some exercise. I'm gonna be the healthiest donor that anybody has ever ever seen." And then, as it turned out, I didn't match well enough. They never contacted me again. And then, as it turns out, I ended up having a. a chronic blood cancer myself. So I have polycythemia vera. I've talked about it on the podcast, a myeloproliferative neoplasm. So nobody wants my blood anyway, but I was on the registry for a while and just getting that letter was amazing. And I would have loved to be a bone marrow donor. So if you're interested, go to bethematch.org. All right, so I will see you back here next week. What are we talking about next week? It looks like we're gonna be diving into twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome if everything goes according to plan. So that sounds really interesting to me. I don't know a thing about it, so I've gotta go learn all about it so that I can tell you about it. So if that works out, I'll see you back here next week to talk about that. See you then. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.